Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Cast of Caught, where we talk all things related to the Dark Tower series by Stephen King. I'm your co-host, Rachel, and joining me back, back, back again, the one and only DJ. Yeah, I mean, I, I heard I got replaced by some stranger in the last, last yes. episode. So, some uh... scallywag strolled in off the street, and I put a <laughs> mic in front of him, and I was like, talk about the Dark Tower. Good. Fortunately, he was a scallywag who was into the Dark Tower, so it worked out pretty good. Awesome. Well, did I? I will have to go back and listen to the show and like take pointers from my my temporary replacement, so he doesn't become yeah. my permanent replacement. Right. <laughs> I mean, he did a great job, and I'm super grateful. But like, nobody can ever replace you, DJ. Come on, come on, <laughs> come on. You're the one and only DJ. No one's gonna say Stephen Shane looks like what's his face. Uh, 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 I get Rodney no respect. Danger. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Only you can drop those pearls of wisdom on the podcast. <laughs> so how have you been? Like you said, we have not actually, this is like the longest we've gone without talking for like a really long time. It's been like over a month. How have oh, you yeah, been? I, uh, I was like, well, wait, this is weird. I, I I feel like I haven't talked to Rachel in a while. And then I like check the chat <laughs> room and I'm like, I haven't been in the chat room in a while either. Like, oh, I know. <laughs> ghosted everybody like some kind of weird ghost guy. Um, wow. it's been great. Like, uh, we drove, it's, it was a 28 hour drive to the Midwest wow. and, and then a 28 wow. hour drive back. So, and wow. then we had stops on the way for some friends in like, uh, Wyoming and in Colorado and then in Nebraska and so on, on the way back. Uh, it, it, you know, you basically end up doing like eight to 10 hours of driving, stop to have a meal with one of your vaccinated friends and then like move on to the next one and, and rinse and repeat it's, it was like the know, DJ road tour. Like everybody yeah, had to like get tickets. You had to be vaccinated to get in. Exactly. And you can't get people together in huge groups. So like it's twosies and foursies here and there as you could get someone to come over to someone else's house or, or yeah. whatever. So yeah, uh, ended up, I think visiting 20 ish folks that we wow. haven't seen in a while and then heading back home again. So and then a couple people got houses, so we got to go check out their new places and be super jealous of how affordable things are. Oh, yeah. Let's not talk about that. <laughs> that is grim. That is, gr- that is a grim subject. All right. But let's talk about our plan for this episode. We're going to kick off the show with an in-depth conversation about Wizard and Glass Part 3, Come Reap, Chapter 10, Beneath the Demon Moon Part 2, Sections 1 through 13, because this is a long one. Oh, yeah. And then we'll close out the show with a f- interesting listener question. Something that I don't know what my answer is going to be yet. I'm curious, very curious about what your answer is going to be to this. <laughs> I mean, uh, you know, I'll well, wait and save it. that. Save it. Yeah, yeah. Hold the, keep the powder dry. Don't end up like, oh. <laughs> okay, cool. So before we get into all of that, though, can you please do me a favor? I did this last time and it, I was, I failed. I do not have your gift for this, but can you please let our listeners know what our spoiler policy is? Listen, guys, before we pull our fingers out of our butt like fart plugs, uh, we will let you know where the spoiler zone is located and make sure that you are safely away from it so that there is no splatter on your nice clean. Oh, no. Oh, my God. I'm so glad you got that in because I, I forgot to include it in the notes. Um, and both times I went through the chapter, I was like, fucking stinking. <laughs> I know. I kind of want to use that in real life now. It's like, hey, get off your fart plugs and get going. 
And people look at you and be like, what? And you're like, you know, you're think sitting about on your it. thumb. Just think, think about it. Think about it. <laughs> it's a thinker, but you'll get there. <laughs> I abandoned Rachel during probably what would have been one of my more discussed chapters. <laughs> Seriously. It's like, it's like action, adventure, like yes. gunslinging into the, to the max. Everything is going on at once. These guys yes. just knock it out of the park. Slingshots galore sneaking into like groups of people like it's just all over the place and then it they... was the ultimate de- i even said that on the show i was like oh my God, i'm kind of sad dj's not here for this chapter this is the one he's been waiting for when i got through this chapter i'm like fuck that's the rocking <laughs> chapter this is like all uh, epic and we're gonna then... be talking about feelings and visions <laughs> yep, back and into then, my like, territory <laughs> we we top everything off with like roland getting the ball and then the ball getting ruined. Yeah. Oof. And, then and it sure does. Yes, it sure does. I think the next one's going to be a you, you chapter again. But God, I can't believe you missed the showdown between <laughs> Jonas and um and Roland after all this time. Ugh. Okay, yep. sorry. And it, like, it's hardcore, so good job. All right, awesome. So Demon Moon 2, sections 1 through 13. Go for it, Deej. Okay, so we know that Susan got captured. Uh, she's been taken back. Um, she did not have to endure a weird rape when she gets dropped off at the house. Jesus. Uh, which is like, uh, you know, apparently uh, her capture was not feeling it by the time he got there, which I guess Jesus. is good. But that, that that was actually something that Stephen King had to make sure and point out to us. Um, yeah, that he was <laughs> no longer in the mood. <laughs> Gross! Yeah, and, and so... So then Susan, like, rolls into this place, like, gets dropped off, and it's, it's uh, Coral Thorn, and she kind of runs her inside, and Susan immediately is like, wait, what, girl? Because Coral, like, jumps up and basically gets in her face and is like, this girl helped the murderers of my brother escape from prison and set them on him, and she's a harlotin and blah, blah, blah. And, like, Susan's like, Bitch, please. I, I won't right. jerk your chain if you don't jerk my chain. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and like, and then uh, um, Susan's like, and you'll never see uh, Jonas again because he's dead. Yeah. And she she flips out, like slaps her. And then while uh, Susan's like kind of wordplayed with her a little more, like Susan's like, you gonna hit me again? Go ahead. There's some room on the other cheek, but let's not pretend that I'm not right. And. <laughs> And you get this mm-hmm. like insight into Coral where she's like, I didn't want it to be true, but now now she's living it got mind space in my brain. Yep. 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 I, yeah. I really love how brave Susan is in this scene. You know, it's great that she's not sort of cowering. You kind of see that she she you gotta remember she's like 14. She's been beaten up by all of these people, and yet she's still standing up for herself. And it it's Considering we're sort of winding down this character, I'm glad that she's kind of getting these beats where she's still kind of showing her character. Um, But what's sad is that some of this bravado that she's putting out there comes from a place of thinking that Rowan's going to come for her. And we know, having read this this half of the chapter, that that is not the case. So that's that's a little tough to read. Oh, to be fair, like, as soon as we got to the ball originally in this book, I was like, oh, yeah, that's how it ends. Really? Is that no, I don't, that, no spoilers, but, like, that's just, like, as soon as I, I read oh. Rhea finding it, and mm-hmm. you're like, oh, yeah, oh, yeah, now everything is 
has come <sighs> rattled loose from the tree in my mind. Like, I remember generally how this goes, but I couldn't remember how it happens. And the book does so many misdirects, right? You know, yep. where it gives you this false sense of hope. Like, maybe she's going to get out of this. That, that um, you know, when it finally, when the hammer drops, you're like, God damn it. <laughs> the other thing you pointed out is the thing about how she's kind of living in Coral's head rent free now. And during this exchange, Coral's reaction to hearing like, oh, your man is dead really drove home to me for the first time that this, this is kind of a warped love story for Jonas and Coral too. It's oh, you know, this book has very much been a love story between Roland and Susan, but because they are sort of parallels to each other, it's easy to forget that the emotions that they're exchanging, even though strange, even though, a much darker version. Like there is actual love there. And it made me for a second feel a little sad for Coral. Um, <laughs> but again, we get like, because they're parallels, we get another parallel scene here with Susan and Coral that Jonas and Roland had where like uh, theirs took place outside the barcade. But essentially here, Susan is vocalizing something that Coral to Coral's face that Coral does not want to hear. that be, And it haunts her because it has the sting of truth to it. In the same way that the things that Roland said to Jonas really hit home because they were things he did not want to face about himself and because he knew at his core that they were true. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and so they basically shove her in a pantry. Um, there's a comment about, like, thank goodness you have the serape on because it's cold in there. <laughs> Uh-huh, uh-huh. A lot of Serape action in this, yeah. Yeah, and then they just shut the door. And I, am I mistaken, or is a Serape just that thing that throws over your head with, like, a Clint Eastwood-style blanket on either side? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's okay. essentially a blanket, right? Because uh, I always was thought of it as a poncho, I, mm. but I don't know if I'm incorrect in, in visualizing a poncho as a Serape. Are you picturing the thing that, like, all the skaters wore in the 90s? Like, the... The, that like hooded pocket no 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 I'm, I'm picturing like a throw blanket with the head hole in the middle yeah that's that's what it is oh okay and yeah, that's I what i thought so. i thought that was um it's like yeah, the thing I, clint eastwood like hid yeah, the like metal yeah. thing he, like, under yeah his, yeah uh, is is apparently a serape um over and like there's the plate underneath of it i mean that's yeah, my so understanding i, I always thought that was a poncho because like hmm. a a poncho that I'm familiar with was like a thing to keep rain off your shoulders. It could have a hood, but it didn't have to have a hood. So nice. I, don't, I don't know. I thought a serap I thought a poncho needed to have a hood. Serape oh, versus, maybe it does. versus poncho. I'm looking it up. Looking it there's up. Some good no yeah. So I'm looking <laughs> and there's ponchos that have no hood. The main difference is a poncho is a cape or blanket like outer garment and a serape is a Spanish-American wearing blanket worn wrapped around the shoulders. Okay, so okay. we're wrong. We're both we have thinking it, of this wrong. We have it reversed. The, I was picturing a poncho this whole time, but it's actually just something that goes around. It's like a big shawl type thing. Okay, so it's that makes more sense. I The whole time they were saying sriracha. Uh, sriracha. <laughs> sriracha. <laughs> the spicy <laughs> sauce that we put on our food no no mm, sriracha is so good though uh, although i'm looking at these mexican serapes and they all look like, like blankets the, with a hole in them yeah i don't know maybe we need um if you are of spanish 
heritage and know better about these things than we do, please <laughs> send us an email and let yeah. us know what the heck the difference is between a poncho and a serape. We're trying I, to do our know. due diligence, I swear. <laughs> All right. Well, I don't know. The greatest mystery of this book. <clears throat> what yeah, is the yeah. between a poncho and a serape? <laughs> okay. Well, let, we've dwelled long enough on Let's on move on. <laughs> Let's move on. So Let's put we, this we behind us, this dark chapter. <laughs> we either go a little bit back in time or a little bit sideways in time, and we cut to the Traveler's Rest. And what we remember from previous chapters is that uh, Rhea basically uh, got Susan's aunt to let her suck on her side and get a little bit of Cordelia juice in her body. (laughs) And and we kind of get the impression that uh, maybe Rhea is like some sort of vampire-ish creature. Yeah, what the hell? Yeah, and that one I totally forgot about. So it's like, okay. And, <laughs> forgot and so, about or blocked out intentionally. Blocked out, yeah, right. <laughs> and, and so we we get this. I wanted to bring that picture up because when Stephen King describes her walking into the Traveler's Rest, the thing that he describes is her looking flush and like yeah. has rosy lips like she'd just been eating some, some of these uh, berries from like uh-huh. the local berry trees. And uh-huh. has like a little bit of blush to her cheeks that she Gross. hasn't had in the past. And we just got a description previously of her being just in the worst shape ever, nasty and decrepit. And like yeah. now the description is like slightly flushed and looking like her rip her lips had filled out. So uh-huh. she really did like eat some of Cordelia and then like let it let it linger for a bit. And then yeah. we find out that Cordelia really hasn't healed from her wound and is almost like operating robotically. We, yeah. we, we also get a weird picture painted of the Traveler's Rest, mm-hmm. uh, normally a saloon where Cheb would be like rocking out. And, and Cheb goes to play a tune and someone just like takes a knife and sticks it near his ears like, you want a air hole in the side of your head? Keep on playing, buddy. Yeah. <laughs> and so that paints this like strange picture of... Of the Traveler's Rest being a place completely filled with people who would normally be partying for this event, but are not. Yeah. And mm-hmm. they are all upset and unspoken about the missing out on all of the things that are normally uh, this season's you know best and spectacular. <laughs> and Rhea kind of knows what's going on mm-hmm. and knows that these guys are all hungry for some kind of action. And she basically just like rolls in and draws a line between uh, the stuffy guys and what they should do to Susan because they all know that they're guilty of bringing these people into their their lair and that they've brought disaster. But one of their own got involved, and that's mm-hmm. the one you could definitely punish. Paint her hands red and you know <laughs> hang her up like a stuffy guy, and then. <laughs> Uh, strangely like she Rhea basically throws it to Cordelia who, with like a weird uh, I don't know if it's psychic or if it's like magical powers but she uh, vibrantly whispers you know go ahead girl tell tell the crowd and everybody hears it mm-hmm. and then like Cordelia like robotically says she did this for a spot as his girl in 
you know, the the main city and uh, she might have slept with the rest of the guys, too. Who knows? And they may have just killed um, Thorin for the heck of it or, you know, because the, that was his price. And it like goes on in this like weird way. And, and everybody just is like, OK, fair enough. That works. Like We just need right. an excuse. Thanks mm-hmm. for your excuse. Like, we're not really into it, but we're we're into it now because we definitely feel like we need to burn somebody. <laughs> right. 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 Exactly. Yeah. This section is really disturbing, but, I mean, well done because yes, it, it does. It says a lot without spelling everything out for you. And you can really feel a palpable sense of danger in this place. It is truly a powder keg. So it's start the section starts by describing how quiet the town is and how normally that would not be the case. And that quiet, that sense of quiet really does under like kind of underscore the sense of wrongness in this area. Before it was kind of things were going along as they normally would, but everybody could feel that everything was off. But now it is very apparent that things have gone wrong in Hambury. And that's only adding to this sense of anxiety that these people are feeling. That and the fact that they have been primed to take direction and primed to act out in in a violent way and to seek justice by Fran Lingle. But instead of having that that build up be satisfied they were robbed of the opportunity for justice so now they're even more susceptible to direction they're even more eager for violence you know and they're not going to be picky about who delivers it it can be the woman of the coups who they they you know they're <laughs> giving the evil eye to who is this total outcast in their society but she's enough of a part of their community that she can p- place the other people to be more of an outsider than she is. They're willing to accept her in in this moment because they're so thirsty for an opportunity to get their quote-unquote justice. Add to that their sense of grievance and frustration over not being able to celebrate Reap, having that robbed from them. You know, we spent this book learning about how the year is gone and you know how in this rural society how much work goes into preparing for this and months and months of labor to prepare for the winter. And like, this is the one thing where they get to blow off steam and celebrate and close the year. It's like spiritual and ritualistic, and it's also being denied to them. So they are just pumped full of desire to get even with the people that they feel have wronged them. And so in comes Rhea. She essentially kind of mirrors Fran Lingle, uh, his talk with them after Thorne and Reimer were murdered. She uses similar manipulation tactics, and but this time, instead of pointing them at the boys she's pointing them at susan the person who she wants personal revenge against and they're they don't care that's fine whoever they're going to be pointed at as long as they're going to be able to get that kind of catharsis and revenge they're going to be happy throughout this chapter and this section we get a little bit more mystic more mysticky in nature uh-huh. and while in the past we've kind of had little moments where stephen king's like hey look at the moon Right. Now it's more like, hey, we're in a magical time of the year when tensions are high and old gods yeah. are awoken and <clears throat> old <throat> practices could be done here and there, you know, and like burning someone is just a thing that happens sometimes in the dark. Right, exactly. I mean, that's one of the ways that she so effectively is able to utilize them in this way is that she 
talks about she has well cord specifically talks about charu tree and what that does is it introduces the idea of ritual and revenge with the veneer of ceremony and Mm -hmm. if they are feeling like their way of life is fading that there is this impending doom that the world is ending or something is changing the idea that they could complete this ritual and sacrifice someone that and that perhaps that would stop those bad feelings perhaps it would appease whatever gods are or whatever they're going to do they're even more likely to want to do this and it also gives them like a permission structure and a validation for what is essentially sacrificing one of their own the other thing last thing i want to say about this is that they she also very effectively through cord uses their sort of cultural misogyny to manipulate them she weaponizes it in this case where she talks about first now, about the so boys and i kind of like okay so she first she talks about the boys as being outsiders so she uses othering in order to say like them versus okay. us then she paints susan with the same outsider brush by saying here is this girl who sides with them she's a traitor she also thinks she's too good for us because she she had them kill Thorne because she didn't want to be his Jilly. She's too good for us. And she's also a seductress. And this is all because of her lusty ways. And all of those things are all things where, like, these men who've seen this beautiful girl around town who thinks she's too good for him, well, you know, who does this uppity girl think she is? And it allows them to, uh, like, it angers them. I mean, it's it's straight out of a red pill. So this this little speech he gives is like right out of the red pill subreddit. It is inc- and it, oh, and we know okay. basically okay. I, from this entire book how the the gender dynamics are in this town. It's very easy to see how misogyny can be used to justify these kinds of this kind of violence. So the final thing, and I think this is a very chilling and effective way that Stephen King describes it, and it's how the men react to hearing all of this. Uh, I pulled this quote. They did not cry their agreement, but sighed it like an autumn wind through stripped trees. First of all, it's a return to our wind metaphor Mm. as the sort of winds of caw are changing for Susan. But also this idea that they agree with a sigh and... That's very chilling because it's worse than if they had done so with shouts because a shout, it it signifies like hot temper, right? And a hot temper given time can cool, but cold determination of a sigh, that's something very, very different. Yeah, they're going to try and murder people. Oh, all right. Go ahead, my friend. (laughs) All right. So moving on from uh, that depressing bar scene, we cut back to our our friendly neighborhood Shimi. Our who, adorable Shimi. Who's been running through this tall grass, having to stop every so often because he's breathing so hard from running that his side hurts really bad. And it's the side splint that you get when you run really hard. So mm-hmm. that stitch in his side, he basically leaves him laying on the ground for a little bit. And lo and behold, his uh, his old donkey, uh, Chappie, comes rolling in. It just bites the crap out of him. <laughs> And like, and Stephen King takes a moment to be like, from Chappie's point of view, like, this is the asshole that brought me out here. (laughs) And he's just enjoying himself, laying in the grass. Fuck that guy. I'll show him once more. (laughs) And bites him. And like, Shimi and like all of the Shimi funness is like, 
I'm going to be squatting above the toilet for a week after that. Oh, you little <laughs> son of a bitch. I know. He's so cute. I love him so much. And honestly, after that dark ass section, it was like such a breath of fresh to yep. be back with Shimi, making us laugh with getting bit on the ass. And so he <sighs> kind of like uh, negotiates with Chappie, grabs those reins and like pulls him away. And uh, it's at least he doesn't have to run so he can ride uh, Chappie into town. Um, Chappie as a whole, like we almost, we, it's weird to get a horse perspective or a, right. a donkey perspective. And like yeah. one of the things that Stephen King points out is like right after Chappie bites him, like it, it, Stephen King describes it as the laughing face that only a mule or uh, some other, you name some other creature could have. Um... I want to say pachyderm, but I don't think that's right. I mean, it's he assume, I mean, he's talking about like camels, I think. Yeah, regardless of the other animal, like Stephen King describes the donkey's face is almost like sheer joy and happiness at what he just did to Shimi. I uh, yeah, I mean, these little interactions between them crack me up. <laughs> oh, bless him. And then uh, yeah, so um, that's pretty much it. He rides her in. Follows the trail and then gets there to the bar. Um, well, the seafront, actually, not to the bar. Uh, kind of by the bar. And he realizes that there's this, like, one drunk old guy that's probably still hanging around. And out of any of the old guys that would have been left behind because they weren't, you know, uh, healthy enough or, or strong enough to be guys toting guns out into the Badlands or down into the drop, um, there's this one old guy that gets drunk and really likes to harass Shimi. And mm-hmm. he's afraid that if he uh, gets Miguel worked up, that he'll call for uh, one of the folks that is part of the gang and they'll they'll ruin Shimi by either killing him or whatever. And Shimi, to his credit, is like, I'm not a smart man. I don't think I can think my way through this. <laughs> I'm just going to stand here. Mm-hmm. And it, it's like half hour turns into an hour, turns into two hours. <laughs> and then finally like miguel comes like stumbling out of the bar <laughs> yeah mm-hmm. and like she me like and this is why earlier i wanted to make sure and point out that we're getting a little bit more mystical here is because when miguel gets out of the bar he's holding like a big jug of corn whiskey or corn wine or whatever it is and he looks up at the the moon and what we're we're led to believe is that this moon is bright enough that even like dusk dawn and during the day yeah it's still up there hovering over and we've yeah. all probably seen like the remnants of a moon in the morning sort of mm-hmm. floating in the sky especially when it's like a super moon and so that's the feeling that you get is almost this otherworldly moon floating up there and when he looks up at it shimi cringes because He's like, that's bad juju, basically, to go yeah, go look <laughs> yeah. at the moon. Like, even during the day, you look at that, you're asking for trouble. Yeah, it's not just the moon, it's the demon moon. Yeah. So that's even worse, right? And like I said, it just, there is this palpable sense of wrongness, and there's nothing says wrong like a big-ass grinning demon moon at noon, you know? So then uh, Miguel kind of, like, fumbles around, and passes out, and this gives Shimi the opportunity he needed. He brings uh, Cappy in, like, ties him up, even though Cappy makes a little bit of noise. Miguel sort of ignores it or doesn't even hear it, and then Mm -hmm. Shimi sneaks into the house, and when he gets into the house, 
he has this sort of like long conversation with the paintings of previous mayors on the wall. Yeah, yeah. And, and there's a fun bit before he gets in here where Stephen King's talking about the use of curse words. And it's like, yeah, it's like uh, the first time you say a curse word, it's a little tough. But every time after that, it just feels good to get that frustration yeah. off your chest. And you so, like, son of a bitch. Yep. And so, son she, of a bitch. Shimi's so been like running around with this donkey, calling him a son of a bitch the whole time. And mm-hmm. then, like, he looks up at this one painting of a mare, and the mare has particularly like angry eyes. Sort of, Shimi like paints this whole judgment of himself on him. <laughs> yeah. And Shimi's like, "You shut up, you son of a bitch!" And it's just like <laughs> this great moment. And then, as soon as that happens. Um, all of Thorin just like pops out of nowhere and almost scares Shimi enough to like give up the the ghost on where he's at and and holler and she calms him down and asks him if he's after Susan mm-hmm. and this is kind of an interesting bit because uh, all of we've kind of over the time like her name implies round and kind of um, docile but. Stephen King takes a moment to say that her husband's death and the grief has actually been good to her. She mm-hmm. looks alert and um, well thought and thinner than she did normally. And she even uh, is like a little bit more clever. And we, we, we get a little bit of olive backstory through this section that I was not expecting. Mm-hmm. And she was a character I was kind of thought of as a throwaway character. Right. But in right. this moment, like you're like, oh, now we have a third dimension to all of that we didn't have before. So uh, that's super interesting. But anyway, they basically plot together to try and figure out what to do about Susan. And um, I don't want to jump too far ahead because yeah, I'm no, this blending. is a, this that's is a, a good, good stopping point. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, no, that's a great stopping point. You're right, though. We do see another side of Olive. And what's great is we as readers have kind of overlooked her in the same way that everybody else around her has. And really, technically, primes her to be the perfect sort of opportunity for Susan to escape. Right? And when we get a little bit later in this, we'll talk about the actual plan they hatch. For all intents and purposes... Wizard and or like wizard's glass aside, Susan should get away. Yeah, because we find out that Olive is much more than people think. In fact, Roland's initial thoughts about her and his initial sort of gut instinct about liking her proves to be true. That his care assessment of her was that she is good people. Because here, her husband is dead. The entire town has lost its freaking collective mind, mm-hmm. and his widow is the only one who is like obviously she did not she is not behind this assassination and on top of it this girl that was meant to be her jilly she's like she could be you know very been bitter toward but instead she's putting herself on the line to rescue her and again it just sort of speaks to all of as a character she really is kind of an unsung hero in this book. And I really, even though this doesn't last very long and it's really sad how things resolve in a couple sections here. Like I kind of love that Olive got her due. She didn't just exist in this book as the sad, like, you know, widow who's crying in the bed next to her crackly piece of shit husband. Like (laughs) she is elevated by being unburdened of him. You know, I'm sure she's sad. She loved him. We know that to be true. 
but he was still an albatross, you know, and she is freed of him and she becomes a greater, like she becomes a, a better self as a result. I of see it. what you did there with the albatross and bird. Uh-huh. <laughs> uh, yeah. The other thing is, is going really quickly back to Miguel uh, is that if Miguel was our window into the mood and mental state of Hambry following, like directly following the assassination. Cause if you remember, he's the guy that Susan briefly thinks about pulling out of the way of the rushing horses when he's just completely in a blind panic. If that's carries through to this section and the, he is our window into the state of mind kind of symbolically of Hambry, we see him, he's drunk, he's confused. And, but most notably he's crying out to the moon for answers as to why this is happening. He is externalizing the internal dialogue of the men that were at Traveler's Rest. Oh yeah, that's true. That's actually a good point. Thank you. Good job. Rick. <laughs> Enough said. All right, so now we cut to probably one of the most important parts of this section and also the, like, craziest. Um, Mm -hmm. So where we left Roland off is he had gotten the wizard's glass and, like, had glanced into it. Well, we find out here that Roland didn't just glance into it. He is in it, in it Uh to win it. Like, Uh the other folks had just been seeing stuff from the outskirts, but this ball knows that it needs to swallow him up fast. (laughs) And... It has got rolling inside of it, just like zooming around the world uh, in future, <laughs> past, and everything. And in previous iterations of this ball interacting with people, it was basically just like, here's what's going on around you. And it's a good way to like peek out on whoever and see what they're up to. Right. Uh, in this iteration where Roland is inside the ball, time is broken for the ball in a strange mm-hmm. way that allows for it to see not just the future, the past and the present, but also adjacent struts of those things. Yeah. To the point where when Roland finally comes out of this, like he's not sure if present is present or future is present or past is present, or if things are happening simultaneously and divulging from these like uh, intricate paths, sort of a butterfly effect. Mm-hmm. So I'm not going to get into spoiler territory, but yeah. Yep. <laughs> yep. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, um, and I'm trying to tread tread lightly here. Yeah, but there's like when Elaine's talking about how the how could the future have already have be happening, I'm right? Like, <laughs> and there, without going too deep into this, because I I think we could probably actually spend an entire podcast just covering this like mm-hmm. one subsection of a subsection. But Roland basically starts out by seeing what's going on at Thorin's old mayor mansion gets a minimal glimpse, gets shunted off to some other things that are going on, sort of gets shunted around again. And the whole time he's hearing his own voice, tell him things about what's going on in the world and kind of directing him. And Roland stops to describe the voice as anything, you know, anything that sounds like your own voice. That's not your own voice is a bad thing. Right. And then he, he, uh, Stephen King even takes a moment to be uh, be outside the box and explain that this is the point where you will tell the folks that you're camped out with in this other time in your life that the voice is bad 
and mm-hmm. and that you didn't realize it until now that that wasn't blood everywhere around, but a field of roses. Mm-hmm. And you will explain, and it's like it's interesting because it's what for, is it first person omniscient? I think, and then it like cuts back to the ghost voice telling Roland. So you you're almost getting like three different time frames rolling on at the mm. same time. Yeah. And so you have, like, current Roland telling the story. You have past Roland engulfed in the ball, seeing or knowing that future Roland will tell current Roland's story and explain that he, now that he's revisiting the thoughts of previous Roland, he understands more about previous Roland's experience in the ball. In present time, while previous Roland is seeing present Roland explain the things that he's having revealed to him to present yeah. Roland. <laughs> things are getting very screwy with the timelines here. I didn't even think about it like that, but it's like layers on layers. Yeah, and then like uh, in that bit, uh the ball also explains that um what Roland's cause and to a lesser extent uh Keith Bird and Elaine's cause will be and explains a little bit about uh, where Susan's in that mix. And then it's like, here's the tower. It's going to destroy everything. And at that moment, when um, Roland sees the tower, he sort of speaks out in a man's voice in mm-hmm. the outside the ball, Roland. And then Stephen King takes a second to like cut to future Keith Burton, Elaine comparing notes while Roland's asleep by a fire, explaining yeah. that he sounded like a king when he said that. Yeah. And then we cut back into the dream again. Okay, let's... Uh, I mean, well, wait. Is he... Okay, sorry, go ahead. Oh, no, 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 no problem. So we, we, we cut back into the dream again, um, Roland screaming this, and then we get this crazy visualization of the land of the dead, basically, mm-hmm. where, like the dead knights come to rise and fight. And we see a few people that we recognize from previous books, like the uh, cook and yeah, the farmer. Yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. And they're, they're saying these like sort of mystic, but also important things that I should have written down, but I did not. (laughs) I mean, I don't know. They, the farmer doesn't really say much. He just says something that he actually says to him in the gunslinger. Oh, is that um, it? Okay, because I was wasn't sure if that was something I needed to mm-hmm. underline and come circling back to. But finishing up, and then I know you have tons of thoughts on this. Oh, I do, but yeah, no, no, please finish up. So finish it up. Uh, he sees the land of the dead, like all of this is flying past him, and then the 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 Roland that is the ball is like, "You're gonna stop this, right?" And Roland is like, "No, I must be in the tower." I must have this. This is a thing I must do. And then the ball's like, and then you shall die. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And hurls Roland as fast as it can towards the craggy walls of the tower. (laughs) And cutscene. Craggy is such a good word. I love that word. It it really, it paints such a mental picture. Craggy. Well, at first I thought like smooth walls and stuff, but really if you get hurled towards something and it's going to be menacing, like, you almost see like a lightning crash behind the dark yeah. tower in a field yeah. that I wish had any other flower besides roses in it. Oh and, no! 
and, and you know like these like sp- spikier and pokier rocks as you get closer and closer and then the reveal is that it's not really a smooth tower it's this like craggy tall uh, angling weird thing that's reaching out into the horizon yeah I, yeah i love these descriptions of the dark tower it's we get so few moments with the actual dark tower despite this books being about the dark tower right? that when you get them you're just like yeah yeah so like you said i do have a lot of thoughts on this section because in my opinion this is the most in section most important section not just in this reading which it is but also in maybe even the book itself just about yeah this like for an early book is like it's got a lot of knowledge bombs that you won't realize until a long time later yes plus it is the moment when roland as we've been getting to know him in this book becomes roland as we've known him now Mm -hmm. we find out so much about his character and how he became the person he is and it happens so fast when you we started this chapter i was always kind of like how is this the same person and i assumed that the things that happened to make roland the man that he is today happened between the books. I did not expect that we would actually get to see the moment and that it would actually be a moment. It wouldn't be a series of events. I mean, there are definitely things that are going to add to it, but the origin of his tower fever happens in this moment and it fundamentally changes him as a person. So like you said, Roland, hears the voice of the ball yeah, and that is notable for a couple of reasons. One of which is that we know that Rhea, when she watched the ball, she couldn't hear anything. She didn't see any, hear anything with the visions. It was all just pictures. She couldn't hear Roland and Susanna talking. So she couldn't figure out why she didn't cut her hair off, things like that. So this is the first time we've actually heard the ball speak. And in this case, it's, it's speaking directly to Roland and you calling him out by his true name his true full name. So it really knows who he is and whether that's because it's inside his head and it can like really absorb the information that way. Or maybe there is a third party here. I don't know. And I, I'm kind of tempted to think maybe there, it is sort of a conduit for a third party based on something that happens later in the, in this section that I'll get to. Thunderclap. My God. Thunderclap is so creepy. I cannot wait to get there. Okay. So like you said, the voice originally sounds like his, which he knows is a trick. And it makes you wonder if it's something that's like trying to use familiarity to manipulate him or mm-hmm. make him feel vulnerable. I don't know. The other, he see, like you said, he runs through a bunch of things that we know from the books. But I thought that also it was really interesting that we get another reference to the Wizard of Oz here. Rhea is is quoting the Wizard of Oz. And here we are kind of at the end of the book within, or the story within the story where, or the end of Romeo and Juliet. And we're going mm-hmm. back to present time, which is Wizard of Oz. And so it's it's an interesting transitional time in the story that I don't know if King is just sort of reminding us like, okay, we're half a chapter away from being back in the present outside of, in Kansas, outside of this green glass building, which I mean, has got to be Emerald City, right? Like, I don't think that's a stretch to assume that that's what's going on. So I thought it was interesting that we got a Wizard of Oz reference here. Hear about Thundercat for the first time, the end world. But the other thing is, his internal voice is not just his own. There's a second voice that he hears during this. And that is the voice of the turtle who says, let there be light. 
So the turtle also is the voice that speaks to him and tells him, like, everyone you love will die that you, and you will still not get in and then says it's going to kill him, which is very unturtle like But what I think the key is here is actually that let there be light. So that's the first thing the turtle says. And the last time we heard that reference was at the Golgotha. And it was the man in black who said it. Oh. Right? So if this is or isn't the man in black, I don't know. But I do feel like that is a little breadcrumb to let us know that there is somebody talking. My interpretation is that there's somebody talking to him through this thing and it's not the good guys so i actually um have another opinion or another idea but first i wanted to mention like i didn't realize that cappy was named capriposa capricosa or capricosa excuse me and like roland's like that's a beautiful name i know you know what i didn't realize shimi is referenced in the gunslinger is he yes oh Mm-hmm. He there's a thing in the gunslinger where he talks about like there he's on a mule at the beginning and he's like there was once a boy named Shimi but he's gone now. Okay, and so um, Shimi actually makes a reference to these guys too because when he's talking about uh, Cappy biting his butt, yeah, he's like I'll never I won't be able to use the Jake for a week. Oh, you're and right. you're like the Jake. Dang, like we've been be using like that <laughs> toilets for the whole time and like now Shimi out of the blue is like. Jake, 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 and you're like, w- w- wait, what? And then, yeah, yep, yeah, yeah. Uh, 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 uh. So that's the thing. But going back to my theory here, hmm, uh, maybe I should draw. <laughs> if you hear this, guys, that's uh, you pulling your thumb out of your fart plug <laughs> and <laughs> step it away because um, this may or may not lead into a small amount of spoiler zone. Okay, uh, so you are on notice. Yep, you're Take on a notice. Second, pull out your phone, press pause or skip forward or whatever you need to do. I feel like I've vamped enough. People have had time. Go deep. Hey, this is Rachel here, just popping in to say that if you're spoiler adverse, skip ahead to about 51 minutes and 20 seconds. Okay. You got this. Okay, so um, my theory is that since uh, we know it's the wheel of Ka and Roland continues to recycle through this adventure over and over again that mm-hmm. it is one of the instances of Roland cycling through the uh, the circle of Ka, talking to baby Roland, trying to persuade him to just go with oh. the simple life of living with the girl and having the kid and dying in Midworld as opposed to going on with his quest because what we come to find out is that Roland's quest is basically endless. Yeah. Right. And unsuccessful, but also continually a struggle, like uh, some sort of Atlas (laughs) um, adventure of going up the hill with the rock. And so it almost felt to me like the reason he felt so familiar with that voice and also alien to it is because young Roland would look at the same sort of events in the ball and be like, this has changed me forever. I'm going this direction. Yeah. And old Roland looks back at the history of young Roland with his future knowledge and says, was it worth it? Interesting. God, I'd like to think that Roland was the kind of person who 
would have that degree of introspection. Well, so it's weird because like a lot of times we get Roland as steady as a rock. Mm-hmm. And sometimes we get Roland as like the extra deep thinker looking around corners. And sometimes we get Roland as just like an old guy who's worn out. So mm-hmm. it it's hard to tell, but I feel... When I went through that section, I'm like, let me back up and start over again. And I started over again. And and then you kind of jump forward to when Roland is explaining to uh, Keith Burton Lane, like, what's ahead for them. Mm-hmm. That, like, Roland of old actually did try to drive home the fact that, like, everything you love will die. Everything that is important to you will be destroyed, and you still will most likely be unsuccessful. And then mm. joining in with the turtle, it's just kind of like, you know, next level. Because if you think it was the ball, like, the ball's hungry and wants to eat him. Right. But the ball also isn't a force for good, as we have come to to learn yeah, right? right so really if the ball is trying to like eat roland and yet he's still being shown all of this stuff that is helpful for him and then when roland's like i'm gonna choose this path anyway the ball's like okay i'm gonna murder your ass so that you don't mm-hmm. do this mm-hmm. like that kind of pulls away from the normal uh I mean, the ball's still trying to eat him, I guess, but, like, it's a different type of evil now, or maybe it's... I, I don't know. It just it didn't sit right with me that the ball would, like, be trying to s- save the world, I guess. I, I mean, that's definitely something that stood out to me. Like, why... If if they don't want Roland to be... If it's a force that doesn't want Roland to stop the tower from falling, mm-hmm. why would it even tell him that the tower exists? Right? Exactly. And, so, like... I mean, yeah, I'm not, I'm not, I can't really reconcile why that would be. Yep. And so that, that was where it led me to the theory that, um, while Roland is touching this, it's almost like an omniverse of right. Roland's and they're speaking back and forth through the Roland's. I mean, I definitely like that idea. I think that's a really cool, fun idea and is definitely not outside the realm of the mythology of this world. I just don't know if it's like, Roland is so obsessed. I wonder if there would ever be a time where he would try to talk himself out of going to the tower. Like, that's the only thing I struggle with. Everything else about this makes more sense to some degree. Like, maybe he's trying to scare himself away from doing. I don't know. All of that makes sense for me, except for that it's so not Roland to be like, don't go to the tower. Well, the only other theory I had was that um, it was Roland before he discovered his purpose telling Roland to not look that direction. Yeah, I don't know. That's really interesting. That one, I don't know. I don't like that one as much as I like the other one. But Listeners, uh, weigh in. I need to know what you guys think about this. Because either way, like, I see a, either of those things make sense on one level and then don't on another. So I'm wondering if there's a third thing we haven't thought of that will reconcile what kind of feels like a plot hole. <laughs> I'm not calling a plot. I mean, hole. it's I'm a saying... fever dream inside of a crystal ball. So like, yeah, it I guess maybe I'm trying to do too much. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so this is a big deal because this is the first time Roland has ever seen the dark tower. And right away, he recognizes that there's something wrong with it. And the way he describes is that is that it's spooling errors, which yeah, I thought like was a computer. 
That's what I thought too. I was like, that feels weirdly technical. Well, it sort of goes in line though with like the world moving on. Um, it does. It does, but it doesn't beams... make sense for Roland to think that. Well, uh, so Roland, who's telling it now, has already met Shardik the Bear and knows That's about true. the Cybernetics Corporation. That is of, true. I keep wanting to say series minor, but like, <laughs> I think that's the series guy of the galaxy. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, I think even if he hadn't met them, like he's receiving these messages. And I just thought it was a really interesting turn of phrase and puts the tower, this mythical thing in kind of a weird computer technological space. Yeah, yeah. I just thought it was, I just wanted to point it out because I thought it was really weird. Um, the other thing is, is he, the moment he sees it, he pledges that he's going to conquer it and to enter it. And I was like, this is very phallic. Um, <laughs> it's a long, tall thing that stands out on the horizon. He, I'm going to get in you. Talking about entering. I'm just like, okay, okay. Um, and then obviously <laughs> this is the moment when his obsession begins. And we have watched him just completely losing it over Susan, this whole entire thing. And I assumed his quest would begin following her death. I did not expect him to immediately toss her aside the second he got a taste of the dark tower he even goes as far as to use the the oath that he once used with so susan the bird and bear and hare and fish but in mm -hmm. this scenario roland's greatest wish is not susan it's the tower Ooh. which is pretty rough stuff especially considering that at this moment we know that susan is you know with child with child and breaking out to try to reunite with him <laughs> like it's so messed up she'll get over it ah no worries yeah yeah i mean i don't want to skip ahead too far but his ability to compartmentalize is terrifying is borderline sociopath <laughs> but this and that when we get there that's the thing that spurred my discussion question with the listeners this time because i was like whoa what does this say about roland's character but we'll get there we'll get there sorry i'm getting out of myself so i'm gonna stop no no problem so uh, pulling back did we have anything else about the glass brain experience before we move on um i mean i we kind of blended these a little bit so i would say did we we haven't talked about elaine so I did uh, sort of jump ahead a small amount to show uh -huh. the uh, interaction of Roland right. simultaneously with Keith Burton Lane as yeah. they're watching Roland interact with this and his eyes are going dark. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But the main cap to take away from that is they hear him say thunderclap. Yeah. And they hear him speak with a man's voice and they see his eyes missing from his head. Uh, yeah. Keith Burt or Elaine, I don't remember which one. I think it was Keith Burt tries to like get around him in the ball yeah. with no interaction at all. And so then they almost are like, well, you got to punch him out of his last stupid thing. Why don't I punch him out of this stupid thing? Yeah. And so it's Elaine um, clocking rolling across the head. And then the thing is like, you get that cutaway as Roland's being thrown towards the the tower and like his inner voice is said, then die. And yeah, and they punch him. And then as Elaine or I mean, yeah, as Elaine picks up the ball and the ball like tries to pull it Elaine. But mm -hmm. this is where we kind of get a feel that Elaine has uh, the touch or is stronger in this than the others. And he's able to keep his eye off of it place it in the bag and seal it up yeah and then we get a weird perspective from the ball that's like 
you got me this time, but I'll be back. And it just right. turns out the lights, right? Yes, totally. It's like the the end of a villain of like all, all of our childhood cartoons was like better left next time, you know. <laughs> yeah, I mean, Elaine is the only person we the only person we've seen who's been able to resist the temptation of the bull. Everybody else, no matter what, even Roland, our hero, can't do it. And so, even though largely I feel like Elaine has been underserved in this book, we've gotten a lot of Cuthbert, and I'm not complaining, but we don't really know Elaine that well. This is kind of his moment where we get to see one of the things that makes him special, and it's his ability to resist the power of this ball. And I think it's kind of revealing of his character as well. You know, maybe it is the touch, but maybe it also could be that the ball is not able to get its hooks into him in the same way because he doesn't sort of have the same fault lines in his character that the ball typically would exploit. I don't know. That was just sort of my theory. Yeah, I don't... uh... I wasn't sure if it was just his mind is hardened against that sort of thing or like could be yeah eh. like he has better psychic protection because of his ability his sixth sense or whatever that could very well be as well but I also think I mean like this book you know is very much a homage to the Lord of the Rings and so I was thinking about what makes hobbits able to resist more so the power of the of the it's they're really or whatever. thick feet obviously like everybody oh, right. knows yeah. that they have i guess hairy if we feet. haven't seen elaine's feet maybe he has very hairy feet and it's all just a foot thing <laughs> okay right. so uh, that's pretty much it for that little bit and then we kind of cut away from them because if i go too much further then i'll be back to them again <laughs> yes 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 and so we're over to shimi um shimi's back at the mansion the mayor's house uh with olive and Olive ran down to the kitchen and like kind of figured out that um, that Susan is in the pantry locked up, and they've got two. Uh, I think it was a vaqueros. Is that the term they're using? Vaqueros. Vaqueros. Mm-hmm. Two vaqueros. Uh, it means, watching it means cowboys in Spanish. Okay, and and they're older ranch hands. And like, there's this moment where she describes them using some kind of of like non-english language crunk crunk yeah and i'm not 100 percent sure why i should know that but i i feel like i should i mean it's like crunking is a dance thing it's no like, i thought it was like you... some purple drink or something <laughs> it might also be <laughs> that sounds that's like ringing bells or if you're getting crunked I know about, like, getting crunk. I mean, God, have we ever sounded like... Like old people? (laughs) (laughs) Strike this from the record. (laughs) I believe that whales are mammals, sir, not fish. Okay, Hmm, moving on. (laughs) Oh, my goodness. All right. (laughs) But, yes, they speak crunk. I mean, like, I yeah, yeah, it's crunk. And so, uh, basically, it it appears that that's some sort of, like, um, version of Spanish that the trail hands use and they are doing that because they don't want to have to tell uh olive know that she can't open the door and that they're not going to do anything about it and she doesn't correct them or speak in crunk because she also feels a certain amount of like chivalrous embarrassment at the Mm -hmm. fact that they are at, at odds with each other but trying to avoid letting each other know directly that they're at odds even though indirectly they are at odds yeah, I mean, you get a kind of a little bit of an insight of what life is going to be like for her, where she is absolutely powerless now. Every bit of clout that she had died with her husband. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah. And so then she runs back up, uh, lets Shimi know what's going on, and and she's like, well, I'm all out of ideas. What do you got? And Shimi turns out his pockets, and sure enough, he's got some of them fireworks that he's been holding on to, and a, a knife and a cookie. Oh, he's so Shimi. Cute. He's so freaking cute, dude. <laughs> I can't take it with Shimi. Well, even, and I didn't mention this, but it is, it is super fun where, like, he gets into the mansion for the first bit, and he wanders up to a plate, and he, like, reminisces about how um hamber used to be a place of fun and adventure and like mm-hmm. big parties and now there's just a half-eaten sad meal there <laughs> with like a half drink thing of ale and he's like well i'm hungry i'll eat this anyway right. <laughs> that does not stop him from eating it <laughs> and yeah. then like has like a moment of reminisce while he's just like eating the food and hoping no one sees him so uh yeah and so uh all of sees the stuff he has in the pocket She's got a plan, but we can't tell you yet because that's coming up. So then we come back to uh, Alan and uh, Keithbert, and uh, Roland is there. He's unconscious, and they start discussing if Elaine can use his um, his psychic powers <laughs> to somehow wake Roland up. And this is where like we kind of get some insight into what kind of training they get with this stuff. Yeah. And so as a gunslinger, we we find out that the training is like, hey, man, um, if someone's hypnotized or in a trance or whatever, and you wake them up incorrectly, they could be messed up forever. Mm-hmm. And Elaine's like, well, I got to try. And just as he's about to um, sort of uh, psychically get Roland up, Roland sort of starts like mumbling and coming to. Mm-hmm. And then... We get, like, basically uh, Roland starting to explain to these guys, like, yeah, what he saw. And it starts with, like, kind of a cold explanation, but he doesn't quite get to some of the more important yeah. stuff yet. Yeah, he basically says, like, I'll tell you on the way. Yep, um, and then they hop off and, and ride. Yeah, well, I mean, the one thing he does tell them is that Susan has been taking both been taken captive and that she's freaking pregnant oh yeah that's right he does reveal like and with my child (laughs) yep uh but he has made up his mind that his cause his cause is the tower and this is kind of the first time he makes one of these decisions where he chooses the tower over someone else he cares about and you know here he thinks it'll be fine because you know probably she's okay but really you can see kind of the origin of the thinking that would lead him on basically down a road that would allow him to drop Jake in order to get to the tower. Well, there's a moment too, where um, he's like, it's the, the ball told me much. And like his explanation is sort of um, vague in that, like this is where we find out that he's, he's seeing multiple paths to yeah. the future and uh different <laughs> different forks and so he's not sure if it's now or in the future or already has has come to pass yeah i actually i think i got a little ahead of us um but whatever it's a, it's no that's fine I, that's why i jumped in is, it's like well yeah, if we're going there we might as well just get no i i blew it i rolled scrolled too down far down my notes the one the thing moreover that happens here because like i said i i threw us off the track here is that we see that roland not only is changed in terms of his mentality but there are physical changes that have taken place while he was looking into the ball 
Cuthbert notices that his hair has turned white and the eyes. Don't forget the yeah. eyes. They're yes. the eyes that um uh Eddie sees in the mirror. Exactly. So the effect is I mean, like we've seen this is something that Stephen King returns to a couple times in different stories of hair turning white when they have these different kind of sort of psychic experiences. Like in the stand, Nadine's hair turns white after she's ra- raped by Randall Flagg. Henry Bowers' hair turns white after he sees the deadlights and it. It basically just kind of reiterates this effect that these, like, that there is a physical toll um, that occurs when you see some of these things. Mm-hmm. And in this case, it it aged him. Uh, literally, physically, with the graying of the hair, but also, like you said, the thing with the eyes, that these are the eyes that Eddie sees that, that, and you know, maybe his, he still has his baby face and he's crying. Um, later on, he's crying. His eyes are full of tears, but there is something wizened and cold about those eyes. There is a loss of innocence and a loss of youth that is gone forever in this moment. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, he's definitely like become hard. Yeah. The one thing is he's smart enough to at least pass off the ball to Elaine. Because he knows that he would be tempted. Yeah, there's a moment where he like he smirks. He's like, "I might be tempted." And I was, yeah. I was almost feeling like it was. It felt like that moment in uh, Rocky Horror Picture Show where it's like, "Come up and have a drink." And you're like, <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. I also think like how different would things maybe potentially have turned out for Jonas if he had been able to pass off the ball to someone else? Yeah, maybe. Um, yeah. All right. Sorry. Go ahead. Oh no no no! So we uh we cut back to Shimi. Um, they've got the uh, two cowboys like hanging out in front of the uh, deal, and basically, uh, uh, Olive's plan was <laughs> to start some curtains on fire, and then like talk the um the girl. I think her name was Mara, uh, Mary or something like that, or Maria Maria um into uh going down and and telling him like this place is on fire this this is where the uh <laughs> you know the fart plugs comes from is like oh my god <laughs> she yells at him like you think he's gonna be happy with you if he finds out you're sitting on your fart plugs <laughs> while this place is burning down and they're like okay fine maria watch the door and we'll go check out the fires and as soon as they take off you know um Basically, they open up the door. Uh, Olive and Maria open the door up, let her out. She runs up and kisses Shimi. No, is... no, she runs out to Maria. Oh, she runs Shimi's out to off getting. Yeah, Shimi's off getting the the horses. Oh yeah, that's right. She kisses him when they went. They go outside. Yeah, that's my bad. Um, now I'm now I'm pulling the uh, ahead. You're here. pulling a Rachel today. I'm pulling a Rachel today. This is normally a DJ move. <laughs> Uh, so she runs out and like she looks all beat up and Maria's like, oh man, my mistress, she's all beat up. And 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 Susan's like, You think Thorne would want me now, girl? <laughs> and then looks over and sees like Olive and she's like, Oh, 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 my bad, my bad. Uh sorry, Olive. Like uh and Olive's like, uh, you think I'm blind, you know? And like isn't upset about it, like realizes that um Roland isn't the one who really did all this. Susan like kind of pleads with her, but Olive doesn't need any pleading because she already understands what's going on around here and knows mm-hmm. that those guys are just fall guys. And uh, then they head out towards the door, and 
Is that where we pause? Or do they pause? Yeah, the... I think that's we go back to Elaine and Cuthbert, and this is the yeah, part okay. where I was talking about how he starts telling everybody the reveal happened. about she. Yeah. yeah, so then we cut back to those guys. Um, Roland basically lets him know that uh, Susan was taken by Jonas, and that she's pregnant. And if he thought she was any any harm, he would turn her out and go back for her right now. Liar. Uh, but but that's not the issue at hand. Their cause is the cause of going to the Dark Tower, and Susan will no longer be part of their cause. And there's a moment where um, Bert's like, she'll meet us on the road, right? Mm-hmm. And Roland's just like, mm, yeah, whatever. He, he's like, I hope she doesn't. Yeah. Damn, he is one cold customer, man. Yeah, and so Roland, like, and, and even uh, there, the boys are watching him, and like, they can tell that Roland still is the person who's in love with Susan, mm-hmm. but is completely resigned to knowing that that isn't a thing that he would choose. And he explains basically that. Uh, that's what's kept their parents together all this time is the secret knowledge of the tower. Elaine tries to tell him that the tower doesn't exist. He's like, no, it does exist. It's out there. Um, and Susan's not part of her car anymore. And then he explains basically like they're going to go through, uh, Farson's men, not because they're trying to, you know, do the right thing. They're going through them because they're in the middle of their path to the tower. Yeah. And you're like, what? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, this is really, <laughs> it's, I mean, it's really it's cold, man. Like, he, he, I'm not convinced that he's certain she'll live or if he's just really good at compartmentalizing his choice. Because the way that he describes the situation is so cold and heartless. He tells the guys, taken by Jonas, he hurt her some, but not too badly. She'll heal and she'll live. I turned around for a second if I thought her life was in any, any real danger. I don't know if that's true because I feel like the tower madness has taken hold. You know, he says that Susan is not his caw, neither is Farson. Um, he hopes he won't meet her on the road because now the tower is, is his fate and that's it. He doesn't even bother to ask Elaine and Cuthbert to go with him. He just basically informs him that they're going. Mm-hmm. Um, and he now looks back at his time with Susan as foolishness. He says they were fools of caw. Caw like the wind, Susan calls it. And he looks at his friends and is saying, and he says basically we're not going towards, like you said, we're not going towards his men to defeat him only because they're in their way. So in other words, he's like completely dropped Susan. <laughs> And all this stuff that we've spent all this time, you know, like all these really high stake things that we've been looking towards, like having to deal with Farson, these robots, yada, 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 getting Susan out of there because she's pregnant and they're so in love. He's like, we're done. None of these things matter anymore. It is it is cold blooded, dude. It is brutal. And it is such a sharp heel turn that I kind of I'm just like a little rattled by it. I don't know about you. Uh, so you kind of feel like the ball specifically uh, dodged Susan's fate on purpose. 
Oh, 100%. Because yeah. it, like, gave him a glimpse and then, like, rolled him off into some other I mean, area? it hinted at it. Like, because it had, it showed Shimi, mm-hmm. which is what Roland uses to justify, oh, she's fine, Shimi's following after her. But it also showed on Shimi's heels, Rhea. And he has chosen not to see that. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So the ball actually did show him that Enough. she was in danger. Yeah. He just chose not. To, I mean, whether he, I mean, I don't know that he consciously chose not to see it, but he was able to compartmentalize the information away. Yeah. Huh. Yeah. That makes it extra dark. Okay. You're right. <laughs> <laughs> I I missed that little snippet. So, um, yeah, that, so Roland, uh, now is a mean SOB who is tower bound and, uh, doesn't care about his future wife or children. Yeah, that is wild. Like he says, you know, I would choose her in a second if the tower weren't going to fall. And I feel like that allows you as a reader not to just be like, screw him. Because we know that that's actually true, or we assume that that's true. Yeah. But at the same time, it is, it's brutal. It's just brutal, especially leading into what's about to happen. So go ahead. You take it from here. Okay, so uh, we cut back to the gang. Um, they're getting out of the mansion, uh, hopping on the horses and Susan sees Shimi and just runs up to him and plants a kiss on his face. And Shimi's like awestruck by this because it's, you know, Susan's so beautiful and Susan, 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 Susan. And then (laughs) it's not just a kiss on the cheek. And so that really like flusters the boy up. Um, there's an argument with Olive about which way they go. Susan wants to go one direction, but Olive is like, no, they'll think you'll want to go that direction because that's what you would do, but they won't expect me to make the decision of us heading towards these caves. And then we find out like a little history on Olive and the fact that she was a, um, kind of a, a sea, sea kid, like, she lived by the caves, worked with the boaters, and, like, played in those caves and knew them. And just talking about the caves sort of, like, puts a little bit of wind in her sails. See what I did there? Wind. Mm. Uh, going back to the nautical air references. Uh, I like it. Ar- I like Arbitross, it. You know, whatever. Um, so, regardless, uh, that sort of perks her up. And then she also kind of makes this cute but fun statement that's, like, Hope you don't mind these peg-legged old lady uh, chaperoning you guys for for a time, you know. Oh, and Olive. and Olive like and Susan's like, well, what about you know everything? And Olive's like, listen, if I can't get these two viejos to to listen to me, um, that shows what kind of uh, state my authority and my my standing in the community is. Mm-hmm. And basically that means you know like she doesn't have anywhere else to go and they need to escape together and her main thing is to get susan out of here before uh things go crazy right yeah i mean part of what makes the last section so brutal is that we cut right to this and we have susan who is rushing to escape and reunite with with roland she has no idea that he has basically abandoned her um did you catch the um little did she know with the shimi kiss too yes we're like that these are the last time they're gonna see each other kind of thing well i I think it's even more sinister than that it's like um this is the 
this is the last time he'll see Susan like this, and maybe that's a good thing. Yeah. And you're like, what? Yeah. What yeah. fate? That's brutal. I mean, we know this is not going to go well for Susan because, I mean, in this next section, it really kind of shuts it all down. But, yeah, the the, the goodbye between Susan and Shimi is really bittersweet. On one hand, it's like this really cute moment between these two characters that we've grown to love. And, and Shimi, of course, is adorable. And part of me is relieved because I know that this is going nowhere good for Susan Mm -hmm. and this removes him from the direct line of fire of whatever's going to happen to her. Um, But it does also, I'm kind of like, dang dude, he didn't just dump Susan. I feel like Shimi totally got forgotten in this too. Is he going to go meet up with Roland? I don't think so. It kind of seems like he's been completely forgotten about and that, and he was like supposed to be a part of the content. So I don't I don't know what's gonna happen with Shimi. I still don't know his fate in this book, but I kind of feel like he's getting pushed to the side, and I don't know how I feel about it. Yeah. Um, finally, Olive had a good plan. I really think that Wizard's Glass aside, this would have worked. She's going against where people are going to be looking for her. She knows where to take them to these caves. She got out pretty quickly. All those things I think were going really well for her. They may have worked had it not been for that glass. Um, I think they might have got away. You know, she had a good plan. She's not the useless idiot that you might have thought she was because of her stupid husband. Yeah, I don't know. Poor Olive. R.I.P. Olive. But we'll get to that. Sorry. <laughs> all right, all right. So we uh, we cut back to Roland and the gang, and like we get one more inspirational, crazy battle scene uh, before mm. the end of this section. Uh, nope. Roland and the gang basically like roll into the camp and. <laughs> Uh, Keith Burt uses his, like, charm to chat up one of Latigo's boys and, like, yeah, good man, good man, good man, good man. <laughs> and, like, does so well yeah. that they're they're basically invited into the camp. And the yeah. description of this kid guarding the place is, like, he's yeah. been riding so hard that scurvy blooms have taken over parts of his face yeah. and hasn't been fed the proper vitamins and minerals uh, that one one should <laughs> in order to avoid those things. And then he sort of had a weird accent that when Keithbert picked it up, he picked it up so well that the camaraderie from the kid almost felt like he would, if he had more time and they weren't in a hurry, he'd ask uh, if he knew so-and-so and and if he was from this neighborhood and like Mm -hmm. where he grew up and so on. And that just shows you how good Keithbert is at mimicking this guy. Mm-hmm. So they're invited in. So they they see this young man, and he is sick and young and confused. And if any, this is any indication of what they're what's waiting for them with Latigo's men. They are going to be no challenge for Roland and the guys. And judging by the way that the men react when the guys are riding in, maybe that first impression is not so far off. And I pulled this quote, and this is kind of where it leaves off. Ahead of them, dust puffed as groups of riders passed before and behind the takers, readying the column for departure. Men on foot looked around at the oncomers, curiously, but with a fatal lack of alarm. And then they descend upon them like furies. End of section. It's kind of a cliffhanger. I was like, oh, we're going to get some action. No, (laughs) we're going to have to wait for the next one. But I will say that compared to the last time where you really felt like oh, these guys are going to put a, potentially put up a fight. Jonas is in the mix. The Pape is in the mix. All these characters that have name recognition really felt like that could be a high-stakes shootout. Mm-hmm. 
there is a sense, and maybe because we've just been told that none of this shit matters anymore because the only thing that matters is the tower, but there really is a sense here where the boys do not feel like they're up against an, an equal and opposite force. And I don't know. I haven't read ahead, so maybe it is more of a fight to the death, <laughs> but I do kind of feel like they're going to just clean sweep. Them. Yeah. I do. I mean, I you do get that sense. And part of it is now knowing we've seen them, their metal. You know what I mean? We've seen what these guys can do in a fight. But also, every description I'm hearing from the kid to the people just staring at him, like, who are these guys? Do not sound like they're going to put up much of a fight. But I don't know. We'll see. Any thoughts? Good save. You're welcome. <laughs> teamwork makes the dream work okay so there's one last little section let's leave this on a super depressing note dj okay so uh we got back to to susan and olive and um they're they're heading out and hopefully i'm not in the wrong spot but they they get to the the trail where uh, olive thought they would go and uh lo and behold up comes uh ria it, she's got a new mule on her on her cart and she's uh kind of um kind of refreshed <laughs> and r- ready for for murder uh we don't see aunt cord with her but we do see um the last surviving member of the gang it was it was, it was um reynolds, reynolds right mm-hmm. yeah yeah so the last surviving member of the gang reynolds is there and immediately they're like, you know, uh, all your buddies are dead. And he's like, maybe they are, maybe they aren't, but maybe I'd be choosing to get out of here anyway. I know he's going to freaking take off. And it's, it's funny because like he starts with that, but then all of his like, don't be a fool. I know about this. I know about this. I know that he's been stealing half the money. Um, I, I know that, you know, you were likely the one who went in and killed Thorin. And all of that, even though it's true and on the mark, and he's in a position of power, it shakes him. Mm-hmm. And he gets a little bit silly about that. And that allows Olive to draw up this like big-ass gun and I mean, I say big ass gun, but it's a blunderbuss, and I assume as a I mean, non- that sounds like a big. Yeah, ass it sounds gun. like a big ass gun. I don't know what a blunderbuss actually is, to be honest with you. I, I thought it was like, like a French horn looking thing or something like that. I think it is. It's one of those ones that has the like, like the big a- opening bell at the end yes. of it. Okay, I'm that's sure what we'll I be too. corrected, but like that is exactly what I pictured too. So he's so distracted. And so awestruck by the fact that she's kind of like pinned him down and, and told him what for about what their plans were, that they allow her to get the drop on him. Oh, so close. So and she pulls close. it out. And like the description is like Olive had to use two thumbs to cock back this this big trigger. Yeah. And she even got it stuck on her serape a couple times trying to pull it out from underneath to point at him. Yeah, but they're so um, taken back by this that they don't react in time, and she goes to pull the trigger, and it's a dead flint. Oh, so close! And we get Reynolds' perspective of like, "What are you idiots waiting for? Shoot her! Shoot her!" Yep. And like, we hear some gunfire. Um, then we cut to Susan's perspective, 
And as the man in front moves to the side, we see all of his fallen over with a hole in her in her <sighs> uh, head and, and is done. And Rhea, of course, is cackling and is like, all right, put her up here, you know, get her over here. And if your aunt Cord is doing what she's supposed to be, there'll be a nice gathering for you back at the <laughs> back at the uh, the old stuffy pile. And Rhea is the worst in the scene. Brutal. Yeah, I mean, it's been back and forth with Susan for a while here. And I think at this point, her luck has run out. Not because it's not pot. I mean, like, because we know that Roland is not coming back. You know what I mean? That Shimi has been sent away, her one sort of protector, her one source of hope. And, uh, and Roland has abandoned her. So he's told himself she'll be fine. And has well she even invokes dis- roland right like doesn't she say like you yes. wanna you wanna get the wrath of roland of gilead on you yes and like she everybody's calls just kind of like by right. his true name and no one cares and i think that part of that is kind of some like it's symbolic or you know that basically he has removed his protection from her she doesn't know it but not only does the name just mean nothing to them but there is no weight behind that threat Mm-hmm. It is an empty threat because he's no longer going to protect her because he's moved on. So she is she is alone for the first time truly in this book. And it's it sucks, man. It sucks. And we also are kind of full circle in this section where, you know, if you think about it, we started this story with Rhea and Susan when she was going up to have her proving done. And she was young and innocent and, and singing her careless love song and made an enemy of this cruel woman who has held onto this grudge to the very end. Like maybe she didn't get everything she wanted, but she'll be damned. She's not going to get back at this girl simply for not wanting to be touched by her. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. It's dark. And she's caught because of the pink glass. It's so frustrating because if Roland had done his done, what he was supposed to do and killed Rhea, Susan would have lived. But well, we don't actually know if Susan lives or not yet. I mean, I think it's this is a Romeo and Juliet story. Roland in present time is talking about her being dead. Like maybe, I guess maybe she could survive, but I I feel confident that narrative is telling us she's not going to. I is mean, that a spoiler? I don't know. I don't know if you want to go that far yet, but we do know that she suffers some kind of fate with Shimi's statement. Yeah, but, exactly. That's what I mean. Like, I mean, I guess it could be the ultimate fake out of all fake outs and ever. But like King isn't telling us from like basically day one that she's going to die. Right. Well, she doesn't have to die to be dead to you, you know. OK, you you actually remember this book better than I do. So maybe I'm wrong. OK, are you right? There is no guarantee that she's dead. I, <laughs> I feel like I've resigned myself to it, but it might be just me trying to protect my heart. <laughs> we'll, we'll talk offline. We'll talk offline. Okay, okay, okay. Fair enough, fair enough. All right, cool. So, DJ, I know this wasn't the action-packed one that we had last time, uh, but what did you think of this chapter? Uh, it's still pretty good. There's a lot of, like, uh, upbeats, downbeats. Mainly the redeeming factor of this particular section is – um section five where you just get a fire hose of mythology and information about the dark tower in a way that Mm -hmm. we have not gotten from almost any other chapter through any of the previous books to the point where 
I really wasn't joking. We could have probably gone word for word and <laughs> spent oh, an entire 100%. hour and a half analyzing just 100%. that section. That's how how crazy it is. So if I was it, smart, I would have made that our extended episode. <laughs> Right, <laughs> we could have just like really dug deep, and I could have pulled all the references from the previous books, and we could have discussed it. But I'm not that smart, so. <laughs> <laughs> and you also get some like interesting interaction. Uh, we get to see uh, Roland and the gang sort of interact with each other and find out a little bit more about their powers. All of is really the hero and um, and uh, what do you call it when you die for your cause? Uh, Martyr, Martyr of mm-hmm. of this chapter, and yeah, man. just kind of someone that gets her awakening as a character, and then immediately uh, finds the exit out in the Truman Show. So, oh man, it's brutal. What about you, Rachel? Yeah, I really like this chapter a lot. I mean, it's 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 hard reading because it's I can you know I feel the drumbeat you know of mm-hmm. what's going to happen with Susan. Apparently, I don't remember it exactly. Uh, I thought I did, but I guess not. And that's <laughs> giving me probably false hope. But yeah, the, like you said, just the the total insight we get into the Dark Tower. And the total insight we get into Roland as a character. To some degree, we understand him. But he's also largely been a bit of a black box. And this thing just like blew the doors off the box. We got to really kind of get inside his head. And... That was really exciting as someone who's like very obsessed with character development. Mm-hmm. That was really, really interesting to me. And and I just, yeah, this is a good freaking book. <laughs> I don't know. Like even the crummy chapters are great. Uh, hate Rhea. She sucks. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, she's yeah, a good villain. Yeah, she's a great villain. But yeah, so no, I really enjoyed this chapter a lot. I'm excited slash very nervous about the next section because I do know that after that we cut back to the present. So we are really close to ending the story within a story. We're going to get resolution next time we talk. Speaking of which, the plan for the next episode, for those of you who are reading along, we are going to be covering Wizard and Glass Part 3, Come Reap, Chapter 10, Beneath the Demon Moon 2, Sections 14 through 27 which is the end of this chapter and the end of possibly everything. Let's talk about our question for the Facebook group, because this was definitely, like I said, a chapter where I really was reflecting a lot about Mm -hmm. Roland's character is the question. Do I like Roland? No, because the answer to that is, is yes, of course I like Roland. I find him to be a fascinating, complicated character that I care deeply about. But what about his character? Is he a good man? And this chapter made that question much more complicated for me. So I want to start, DJ, what about you? Uh, so we, we actually, I mean, I'm going to say this with Definity, and then someone else will be like, but here's a hole I'm going to poke in your story. Right. <laughs> um, of course, of course. So even though uh, Roland as a human being has made this choice here to... Basically, cast off the love of his life, who has hung her entire fortunes on him being part of her world, and he's impregnated her and is also planning to abandon his child. The reason he's doing it puts him into the good man category. Mm-hmm. And the reason is well, the fate of one versus the fate of many. 
and this is a common superhero slash uh, hero trope. Star Trek. <laughs> yeah, like yeah. everywhere you look, this is a thing. And this is the justification that basically underlines the fact that the person is making the ultimate sacrifice to give up the thing that they want most in the world to save everything that has ever existed in said world and thereby negating the shitty stuff that they are ultimately either going to do, have done, or are in the process of doing. Mm -hmm. So if you work at it from that angle, then you got to say that Roland ultimately is fighting the good fight and doing the good man thing. Um, if you were to take all of his little bits, you know, like chucking a kid into a hole or... Or, you know, abandoned his... The little bits. <laughs> that yeah, time you know. he murdered a child. <laughs> but I mean, I mean, like... The times he murdered a child. Yeah, there you yeah. go. Multiple times. And, like, many of the other things Roland has done over the course of his life. You know, there was an entire town that he, <laughs> he shot up and murdered at some point there, you know? Yeah. Uh, but this is all in self-sacrificing hero manner to mm -hmm. save the world as we know it or worlds or universe or whatever and so that means i think roland is a good man by a sheer scale of magnitude weighing mm -hmm. one thing against the other yeah okay so just i'm gonna say spoilers here and out for people who are just just you know in order to like get into this especially when we get into the listener responses. Yeah, there's like, no way to not go. There's no way zone. to not do spoilers. Come back. We'll see you in two weeks when we cover the next chapter. <laughs> I was trying and to then, keep it non-spoiler too. Yeah, no, I appreciated that. And then I realized <laughs> I was like, oh God, because I started like, I was kind of like scanning the answers and I was like, oh no, we're talking end game here. Um, Yeah, I don't know. I don't know that I think Roland is a good man because like, what is a good man? It's someone who... Like, I guess that's the question is like, what makes someone a good man? Is it? Well, are we going with like a biblical scale? Like, or the, um, what, what, what was the scale of, uh, of the Egyptians? Like you put one feather on one side. Yeah. That's an interesting. And if all it. of the crappy and, things that you did outweigh the feather, then you I mean, are bad. If we're going to go Egyptian scale, which would make sense considering of like the Egyptian connection to the eld stuff. I think, yes, the good things that he's going to do, like saving every living thing that he hasn't killed already himself, is definitely going to weigh heavier on the right side than the left side. But I think of him more of an instrument of the good as opposed to necessarily being good himself, because he's a man who is driven by obsession. And I don't know that all of his, I, I don't know how much of what he does is altruistic and how much of it is to basically feed his own desire, his own obsession. Well, does and, the intention matter if the outcome is uh, everything is like a, a good example is um, if. If you is were, everything a means to an end? I don't know. Yeah, that. if you were in in uh, not intending to pull this lever that saves fourteen people, and <laughs> but you hit it because you were angry at the world, then you were just throwing a little tantrum. Tantrum, like ultimately, does that still count towards your your good good move? Yeah. See, that's the thing. I I guess in one scenario, like you would have to be completely neutral, like, and you're just doing it based based on math 
Mm-hmm. The other one is I think you have to factor in the fact that it fits within his own desires and that I don't know should the situation change and the multiverse is not at stake, what would happen to his desire? Would it be like, oh, well, if the multiverse is safe, then I don't need to do this anymore, let go? Or has his own personal obsession with breaking into this, like he says, I will, you will, it will not stand that he, he's going to break into this. Would that desire remain? And if it would, and then I don't think you could say he's a good man. I don't know. I don't know because it's not like good men don't do bad things. Like think about people who are in war, right? Like people die. So, but does that make them a bad man? No, it doesn't because, you know, well, it's the name of the game. You right? hang your it's... hat on like whatever cause that you are in favor of to exactly. say that you are morally exactly. superior to some other fool who hangs his hat on a different moral standing and says he's the one who's honorable here. I mean, yeah, we we've it's complicated. Yeah, no, I know. I, I guess I think he's neither a good man nor a bad man. I think he is like lawful neutral. Well, so but, here's the thing, like it, it, one way of looking at it is the scales, but the other way of looking at it is to say like, okay, are you using your belief or whatever as a means to commit atrocities or is your feeling that the atrocities that you are preventing from being committed so strong that you will commit any atrocity necessary to uh, revoke the major atrocity? And if it's the second one, then you're still good. You're just shitty (laughs) because it's like, uh, so imagine you're in like a spy group, Rachel, close your eyes. You're okay. You're like, um, eyes are closed. You're an American ally and you have to like get into this German camp and be part of them. And you fight alongside them and you're all good buddies and so on. But secretly, you even though you become friends with all these people and you really like them and you find out they're not as evil as you think they are, you still have to perpetrate this horrible thing that will end up killing all of them because you know ultimately that will allow you to, I don't know, blow up Hitler or something like that. Right, right, right. No, and, I mean – Or maybe yeah. like even worse, like you fell in league with these guys and truly believe in their cause – Mm-hmm. but you don't believe in their leader's cause and you want him to die. So you have to kill everybody that you're in league with to allow them to not stop this other thing from happening that kills the leader. And so in that instance, you're actually like, you're the, you're the knife, the gun, the whatever that kills each of the people that you are, you know, good friends with. But Mm -hmm. in the end, your justification for that is this guy that is the ultimate evil goes away. Well, then, yeah, I mean, greater good. Right. But I mean, like when you're thinking about what makes someone good, I would think that loyalty and strength like that's a that is part of the indicators of good character. That's why I'm saying it's complicated. Like, I I honestly can't stop arguing with myself i know right question and that's why i was like i hope someone gives me a definitive answer that i can live with because like 
And that's why I'm kind of coming down on the idea that he's like lawful neutral. Like he's not necessarily a good man, but he's also not a bad man. Well, lawfully he neutral, very... he's a gunslinger, so I guess you could hang your hat yeah. on that really. And I think to some degree he has a code of honor, but what's what makes me tip into the like he's not necessarily a good man mm-hmm. is that I think he would break that code of honor if in order meant, to uh... achieve he will he's willing to kill innocent children. He doesn't care as long as he can get into the tower. And is it just to save the tower or is it just to get into the tower? And maybe that is that is the difference right there, depending on what his true motivation is. Is it mm. just to get into the tower or is it like I have to do this to save the world? And I I think there's evidence in both directions. Yeah, maybe. I mean, I, so, I don't disagree with you. Uh, this one's one where I could talk with you for about 20 minutes and we'd right? both be on different sides. We're too sober for this conversation. <laughs> we need to be much drunker. <laughs> <laughs> All right, well, let's... Do you want to hear what the listeners... Yeah, yeah. Are, are there any okay. uh, gems where you're just like, and now I believe? Well, okay. So let's see. I haven't read them all yet. So let's see what we come up with. Okay, so Ryan has a very declarative this response to this. He says, yes, he is a good man. I arrive at that conclusion based on how often he seems to question himself and his method- methods on his journey to the Dark Tower. Every time he hurts someone that isn't evil, he is filled with guilt, but he also realizes that if he doesn't get to the Tower, the, the multiverse could collapse, killing everyone and destroying everything. He carries a great burden on his shoulders and that forces him to put others in danger. And he always recognizes and regrets that Ka has created a path that demands sacrifices and hard choices. So I think in this case, he falls on the side of Roland is doing it to save the world as opposed to just to feed his own obsession. And so I think the logic that's, that's the case holds. Yeah, it makes I'm sense. Still, I'm still on the fence about that one central thing. So, okay. All right. Sheldon says, I believe Roland is a good man when it suits him and or advances his journey to the tower. Oh, here we go. Okay. I don't believe he is evil, but he is ruthless as fuck. Uh, he's driven and doesn't isn't letting anybody or anything come between him and his ultimate goal. He left two cotets behind him in his journey, and although he feels guilt about his actions... Losing his friends did not deter him from his quest. Mm, mm. See? I feel like this is going to be the dividing line. What do you think? Uh, yeah. I mean, this basically boils down into the exact same arguments we were discussing. From right, the right. It's like, um, is he bad because he's doing a good thing or is he good because he's doing a bad thing? <laughs> Like, I, I, I know. So Leah takes a much more neutral. <laughs> and I'm kind of with her a little bit on this. It says, Roland is such a tragic character. Hard agree. Um, there is much within him that is out of his control. He is a man possessed. He isn't good and he isn't bad. He just is. And that would be into your neutral gunslinger mm-hmm. territory right there. Mm-hmm. So Tim says... I believe he's good, if cold at times, especially since he's trying to save the universe. It's taken him thousands of years, thousands of journeys to get to this point, though. Oh, that's interesting. Like, maybe his character is evolving, which, I mean, it would need to, right? So, okay, again, this is in-game stuff. He gets the horn at the end of this one, mm-hmm. which means some he's had some growth. Um, I guess we'll see in the next couple of books. Like maybe this is this book is gonna um serve as a contrast to who he is by the end of this journey, 
and we'll understand why like what he's done differently this time if we think about it as like this need him needing to do things differently as around his motivation i don't know i don't know all right um let's see here craig says i guess this question depends on how deep his obsession is see craig's with me on this um I believe Roland will always think the ends justify the means. And sure, he may feel bad about it, but he'll still do awful things to attain his goal. Like a drug addict who will mug you, they may feel bad, but they still did it and would do it again. I honestly think if it came down to reaching the tower or shooting his cotet in the head, he would kill them. It would destroy him, but he would do it to reach the tower. And maybe with the whole multiverse at stake, it takes a man like Roland to make that choice. But I don't think he's a quote unquote good man. He can't be for what he has to do. That's interesting. Maybe it doesn't matter if he's a good man. So he's yeah. going with the uh, Requiem for a Dream approach? <laughs> yes. Oh, God. Requiem for a Dream. <laughs> I saw that movie like 10 years ago and I still just look. Um, okay. Leah says, I don't want to spoil anything for anyone who hasn't finished the series, but dot, dot, dot. It's clear by the end. That saying the world is not real, or saving the world is not really his motivation. In fact, in the end, he's willing to risk everything, including the collapse of the entire universe, to reach the tower. Well, and then there's a lot of back and forth. We won't get into all the back and forth, but there is uh, a lot of evidence here. If you are not on the Facebook group and you are interested in this debate, they are people are citing events. They are getting deep with this. They are pulling in additional sources like the Black House as evidence. This is a spicy debate, and I am living for it. <laughs> Dude, I, our listeners are 100% my kind of nerds. This is exactly the kind of conversation I enjoy. And they're way smarter than me, man. It's, uh, I read I some mean, of that stuff. It's like, <laughs> okay, so Joe weighs in last, and he says... Roland has a sense of justice that's been passed down. So culturally and patronally of the quote unquote, the white, which we are to interpret, at least I did as a force for good in the multiverse. I often think that Roland believes maybe the ends justify the means. And in his heart of hearts, he believes that he has to climb the tower and save the universe says, um, but he gets somewhat lost along the way. I mean, I think that's fair, too, because at the end of the day, even though he's sort of this mythical gunslinger, Roland is still just a man. He's still in. He's not infallible. So maybe he's just a little lost. <laughs> Murdering people. Ah, I just got a little lost. Mm hmm. Holy shit. OK, this these these people are going deep. This is great. <laughs> maybe this we is... uh maybe we cut this one off and leave it as a hey guys go check out facebook yeah come come check it out i definitely feel like this is a conversation maybe we're gonna need to return to as we near the end of each of these books i think we should maybe re-investigate sort of who roland is as a person because i do think he's so complicated and that each of these stories like reveals more and more of who he is this one takes us back to the origin of our our you know present day roland who he's mm -hmm. become so i wonder moving forward as we he's he's changed so much from the gunslinger to wizard and glass I can't imagine that that's that evolution is going to change or is going to stop. So I think we're going to talk about this again when we get close to the end of the next book or actually the mm -hmm. next, next book. 
but we'll, this we'll thread is evergreen. Yes. <laughs> All right. So thank you everybody for answering the question. If you want to be a part of this discussion, you can drop us a line at, at the cast of caught zombiegirls.com or better yet, join the Facebook group, hop into the conversation. Just because we've talked about it on the show does not mean that it needs to stop on the, de- the debate needs to stop on Facebook because this is really interesting and y'all know these books. <laughs> you really, really do. And I'm always impressed, always impressed by our listeners. That is it for this episode, unless you are a patron and they're sticking around for the extended episode, where we are going to be talking about the episode of the X-Files called Chinga, which is a dirty word in Spanish, by the way. Is it? It is. Uh, That it was written by Stephen King. So we just thought it'd be fun to revisit that episode. So, yeah, you should join us. And if you want to do that support us on Patreon and all of the episodes on this and all of the uh, podcasts on the Zombie Girls Network all have extended episodes for just for patrons, just for family. So, if you want to get in touch with us, drop us a line at castlecottzombiegirls.com If you are enjoying the show, leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever it is that you get your pods. If you're looking for something spooky to watch tonight, check out our video on demand and streaming calendar on the Zombie Girls website. And if you're a nerd who likes video games and you want to watch me play video games, you can follow us on Twitch at twitch.tv forward slash zombie girls. And if you want to look really sexy and hot in one of our cool t-shirts, check out our merch at tpublic.com forward slash zombies dash girls dot dash podcast. And like I said, support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash zombie girls. All right, DJ, for those of people who are signing off, where else can they find you on the internet? Oh, you can swing over to uh, deadlantern.com and check out the Dead Lantern podcast. Uh, and that's pretty much it right now. Um, I Are you have still my... talking about the Beatles or did you all decide uh, on it? We're all done on the Beatles. Um, oh, thank God. I had to dip out for the Beatles, but I'll come back now. What I are you guys talking a, about now? I picked a rap band that I thought was somewhat popular from uh, England and turns out it's only popular in England. Oops. <laughs> That's okay. Wait, the whole point is to introduce something that they didn't know, right? Yeah, and it's uh it's a weird one where like occasionally I'll be wandering through my playlist and this dude will come up. I also found out that uh sometimes Google Play Music will let you or I guess now YouTube Music will let you listen to stuff without giving you any information about what the stuff is. Hmm. Yeah, so um, I think it's uh, Scooby Scoop Scooby Scuba Pip is the name of the rapper. Okay, and uh, yeah, um, had to actually have Danny Shazam it <laughs> to figure out <laughs> what the f it was. So like, that's a weird, weird situation that Google can distribute me music that they can't name. So obviously, who's getting paid for that? I don't know. Question oh, mark. Oh, question mark. Escandalo. And you've covered everywhere you could be found. Are are we ready to take these guys out? Yeah, let's take it out. Like you, as always, you can find me on Zombie Girls, Stream Queens, um, and more deadly. So if you want more of this, also one last episode of the Here's Johnny crossover with the Stream Queens, where we're covering the entire Saw series. The only one we have left at this point is Spiral, which will be coming out in June. So. Saw that one coming. All right, DJ, take us out. Hey, Rhea, you looking good over there, girl. What's What you got on? And Rhea's like, I got some crimson blush. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my gosh. <laughs>
saying goodnight. You know, I never know what to expect. Definitely did not expect that. Oh. <laughs> Thanks, everybody, for listening. And to my co-host, DJ, for making me laugh and for indulging all of my tinfoil hat conspiracies. Production on this episode was done by yours truly. Our theme song for the show was created by DJ.